Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Crispin Mayfield, thank you so much, dude, for joining me today. I am so excited to be here talking about attachment science and faith, my favorite topic in the world. I mean, you wrote a book about it. It's called Attached to God. We're, we're going to be referencing that book today. I don't know if it's exactly my favorite topic, but man, it's 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 creeping its way into the top five, top ten for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it was an info dump, this like integration of psychology and faith, like trying to trying to figure out like from these different perspectives, like where does this fit or like what does this mean? Just, yeah, some of my favorite topics ever. I think you're on the right podcast then. Crispin. In your book, you talk about this thing your grandma used to sew together, this very popular evangelistic tool for children over the last hundred plus years called the wordless book. Tell us about that. Yeah, I remember it from my grandma. It was like made out of felt. She sewed it. So it wasn't really a book. 
and it had these different colors to like help someone walk through like a gospel presentation, right? There's like the black page that signifies sin. There's the white page that signifies like that you've been made clean. The red page which signifies Jesus' blood. I think there's the gold page, which is like you can go to heaven because you're purified. So I think it goes black and then red and then white and then gold, I think. And then green is like you. Well, we better talk about the fact that you also have to grow as a Christian. We'll add, we'll tack <laughs> green on to the end. Right. Yes. yes. We didn't. I, I don't remember if we had books, but I definitely remember making bracelets with those five colors in that order, like at vacation Bible school or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I was just thinking about how impactful that is as a kid to be told the core of who you are, your heart is black. And I also w- think it's worth mentioning, like, like the Bible might use like metaphors around darkness and blackness. We are in, in America where white supremacy like was founded upon white supremacy. So it's really worth mentioning that like when we talk about like black and white, black being bad, white being good, like there's all of that in there that's really problematic that wasn't present when the Bible was written. Um, In that context. Um, But so I want to mention that before going forward. But thinking about being a kid and being told, like, at the core of who you are, the like your innermost like self is black with sin. I was like, that's got to do something to a kid. So I that's where I was like, I'm going to explore this a little bit. It seems to have originated with Charles Spurgeon, who was a 19th century preacher in England. And I was reading that part of your book. And what's so interesting is that the first sermon that he used it in was not just any old sermon to any old group of people. It was actually, he was preaching to orphaned children. Mm -hmm. But if you're thinking about who are the type of people who are most likely to suffer from a lack of healthy attachment to a loving caregiver... Mm-hmm. Number one is orphans. I mean, that, there's right. no there's no better uh, slash worse community for that particular issue. And it's interesting that like it was seen as this success because it really resonated mm-hmm. with these orphan kids. And you're like, well, of course it did. They, mm-hmm. You know, there come this is like I'm, I'm getting a little bit cart horse here because I, I yes. uh, because I'm so excited. But but that is really interesting, just that yeah. it was field tested on orphans. Exactly. Yeah. So I was, I was just shocked to find out that it had been around. It totally, to me, felt like a 90s thing or like an 80s thing. Like, we're yeah. going to like have yeah. this new, cool way to like tell kids at VBS, you know, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it goes way back. And I actually started off in my journey of learning about attachment with children that had gone through attachment trauma. So Kids that had been in the foster care system. A very similar population to his original audience. Yeah, Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, and what I read is that as a field, you know, people have found over and over again that kids that don't get those early needs met, right? They've been abandoned. They've been, they've had this attachment trauma where it's like, I was maybe connected to a parent and then I was removed from them or like I got attached to this like foster care parent and then I had to leave those sorts of things, or like I was neglected, I was emotionally abused. This theme comes up over and over where it feels like there's something at my core that is disgusting that drives other people away. So the literature talks about kids that like will draw themselves as like rats or pigeons or monsters. Dr. Karen Purvis, um, 
who's done so much in the field of attachment and working with kids in the foster care system, she talks about, she's like, you know, I meet kids all the time that just feel like I'm all black inside. Yeah. I've worked with clients. This is shared with permission where they're like, it feels like there's this like gooey ink, gross thing that's going to get on other people if they get close. And so then it's not surprising when Spurgeon in the 1800s is like, and you have this, like, you know, at your core, you are rotten and dirty and broken and black with sin. And, uh, and they're like, yep, that fits like that, that yeah. resonates. Well, it makes yeah. me think of William James and his distinction 130 years ago between healthy minded religion, think mm-hmm. Oprah, Rob Bell, Ram Dass, Deepak mm-hmm. Chopra. And sick soul religion, think Luther, Spurgeon, Mm -hmm. the idea that like religion is primarily here to sort of bring out the best in us. It's already there and we're, we're going to kind of bring it to the front. It's, it's a kind of, it's a way to sort of be our best selves. I mean, Mm -hmm. Joel Osteen as well for a a particular, (laughs) the the shittiest version of it. And then sick soul religion is like, no, you got to start with the real crap, like the evil either out in the world, like the Holocaust or in our internal self, the way Luther and Spurgeon would think about it. And so that distinction is is mapping on here. Let's talk a little bit more just about the attachment science in general so that people, so that we don't lose anybody with terminology. Mm -hmm. I think a good way in, uh, and you talk about this in the book, is to talk about the still face experiment. This kind of enfleshes it. So tell us about the, the still face experiment from 20th century. Ed Tronic was this researcher who did this thing called the uh, still face experiment. And basically what he did was he just um, super basic sets a toddler in their car seat on a table and mom is interacting with toddler. They're, they're going back and forth. Toddlers pointing around mom is cooing, whatever. Right. And then mom's face just goes to a still face, like a, like a resting face stops interacting with baby. The baby like starts by like making sounds, pointing around, like trying to get mom's attention again, right? There's this point of disconnection. And over the course of like literally just like a minute or two goes from like we're interacting and and now like hey, can I get your attention again to like total meltdown, like screaming, like I've lost you. And how we understand that is that we are designed for, that's such a Christian term. Optimized for. <laughs> we are optimized. Is that good? Right. There we go. Yes, there we go. Less loaded. We are optimized for uh, connection. And um, especially with one, you know, primary caregiver. Right. Even better mm-hmm. if it's two, if it's two parents mm-hmm. or if it's an older sibling or an aunt or uncle or a grandma or grandpa. Right. But really, it's it comes down to at least one. Person, mm-hmm. often our mothers, but not always, that we feel truly connected to in an ongoing right. way and accepted and loved by, right? Yes. Uh-huh. There's this whole spectrum, right? Like, like if you're a parent listening, you don't have to be in front of your kid 24 hours a day. Right. Uh, really, like during those, first of all, it's only during times of distress or when that kid is reaching out for you that you have to be available and the the research is somewhere between you have to be responsive 50 to 30% of the time. Like you yeah. don't have to, you just have to be responsive enough of the time. Yeah, it's right? called so the like, good enough parent principle. Exactly. And, right. you know, we're going to get to the types of attachment, but in terms of child attachment with their parent, with a primary caregiver, 
it's it's pretty good. It's like I don't maybe you know the current numbers, but it's like 75, 80 percent or something of children have secure attachment. So this is not a four alarm fire for parents out there. Probably if you are listening to this, you're good. You are good enough on attachment. But where it gets really interesting is in later life, because they measure that Mm -hmm. at like two years old. Right. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, well, what happens if you don't have that? How does it show up later in life? How do we try and compensate for that? And that's where theologically this stuff gets really interesting as well. Right. Yeah. When you have this chronic disconnection, it does feel like a death. Like that's basically the, the founder of attachment theory. Dr. John Bowlby says like, it is like, we can understand this as a death. And this was during a time in the forties, fifties and sixties when they thought like, Kids don't care as long as someone changes their diaper. Like, and what he came in and said is like, when a child loses their parent, it is a grieving process that affects their nervous system. Um, And so he's contributed a lot, but it just, yeah, is this like drive for connection. I published my book with Zondervan. You can have this theological take of like, God is relationship. That's why we have this drive for connection. Because Bulby, what Bulby was saying was like going a step beyond Freud. Freud said like babies just want their mothers because they want milk and they want protection, right? Um, and Bulby was saying like no, like kids will actually they will attach to their parents if their parents don't feed them, if their parents don't protect them, if they're you know, yeah. I mean, we can kind of break down in a scientific way what that can drive for connection is about, and it's about. Uh, we are herd creatures and our nervous systems calm down when we are in our herd. And our herd is often like a herd of one of like, that's my mother. I know her face. When I am near her, I feel safe. Despite like the outcomes of that relationship, it's l- far less conscious than like, I'm going to like stick around because you give me food. It's like, this is my parent in I am programmed to stay close to a protective figure. One of the early things I found in in a conversation with uh, a future guest, Elizabeth, we talked about how there's a real difference depending on the theological assumptions you make with your young child. On the one hand, we have the wordless book or bracelet mm-hmm. that I was that I made. It we start with black. Right. Mm-hmm. This is where mm-hmm. a lot of reformed and other sort of, you know, Reformation era Protestant theology starts. Well, the the primary problem is sin. So a child is sinful by default. And any conversation about bringing them to a saving knowledge and relationship with God should start there mm-hmm. versus there's an alternative. And and, you know, Lisa Miller's work uh, would point to this alternative from an empirical standpoint that all people have an innate spirituality and an, and an ability really sort of like we have an ability for language. We have an ability for various types of physical activity. We have a natural mm-hmm. ability for the spiritual to connect with a power that is not a person right near mm-hmm. us. That's sort of accessed inwardly, but also manifested through nature. Uh, this sense of a higher loving guiding power And if we like, there's a huge sort of psychological and developmental and parenting difference between those two opposite theological starting places. Do I need to make sure my kid understands that they're bad in the sight of God, but hey, Jesus is going to solve that. Or 
do I want to just encourage this innate ability they have to talk with God, to have a relationship with God? Talking about the most interesting questions. That is, that is in my top five, most interesting topics mm. and questions over the last year or so. I just find that so fascinating. I wonder if, if you might want to riff on that a little bit uh, at this point in the conversation. When I look at this feeling, this feeling of like there's something at my core that is disgusting and drives other people away, there are two ways to diagnose that, right? One is, yes, that feeling is there because you are sinful at your core and it will go away when you are, when that sin is washed away by Jesus. Right. Right. The other path is, yeah, that feeling is there because your needs weren't met. You've gotten a message that there's something wrong with you that drives other people away because, you know, your parents didn't stick around or like, and, and I'll say this all exists on a spectrum, right? So yeah, I don't think any of us come out unscathed and most people, I'm a therapist. I know that most people deal with shame and the, we know that the way that we can heal from shame is by being known by being vulnerable to being loved for who we are. Right. But the the first message of if it, if you feel bad because of your sin, then we get stuck in this place of like, oh, I must feel this way because I'm sinful, so I need to change, and then I won't feel that way anymore. And like this, like this also like gets into some of the research around disgust psychology and Richard Beck. I love um, that stuff. Yeah, what you learn there is like our brains just hook on to things, right? And may hook on to like, because there's something wrong with me or because I've done this little bad thing, like maybe I've done something small, but it means that I'm entirely tainted. I I look at that, like that half of psychology being a big explanation of like why in the church we then end up feeling like there's something wrong with me. I still feel the shame feeling. I need to confess more or I need to be better or I need to like, you know, I need to stop doing this or that and then I will feel better. But we never feel better because that's not actually the problem. The problem is that you haven't had an experience where your nervous system feels loved and accepted. (laughs) I was going to say like, the problem is you don't understand you've been loved, but like that sounds so like. (laughs) It isn't about understanding. It's, it's about truly feeling like it's true, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And that disconnection between sort of thoughts and feelings is a helpful lens for sort of this entire uh, Mm -hmm. conversation and sort of attachment science in general, right? Right, yeah. As a therapist, I think about like, this is the thing that comes up so often for people is like the shame, right? There's this like, I feel like there's something wrong with me and if other people saw it, then they would run out, turn their backs and run, you know? And this strand of Christianity points us in the wrong direction because it actually says, if you would change more, then you would feel better. And it makes me think about Brene Brown, where she talks about like fitting in actually makes shame worse, right? The more we perform, if we perform to get belonging, then there's always this counter narrative in our the back of our head that says, well, if people really knew me, then they wouldn't actually accept me, right? So it's not actual belonging, it's fitting in. And that's, I think, oftentimes where we end up um, in the church is like, oh, well, 
if people actually knew who I was or at my core, like I'm putting up this front, you know, this whole idea of like that there's something at your core that drives God away really undermines your feeling of safety and security with God. If there's something that is inherent to who I am as a person that is always threatening God's ability to be near me, then like, how can I ever relax? So let's talk about the the types of attachment. They're called attachment styles uh, in adults, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, so there's secure attachment. We we've kind of covered that. That's where you feel okay. You know, I'm like, uh, <laughs> in fact, it, it's helpful for me because sometimes I I am a little maybe even like too securely attached. I think so highly of myself. <laughs> I feel so, you know, fundamentally loved and appreciated that I actually can, I, I need to sort of focus that out to others more sometimes, but it's like, yeah, I'm good. Like the, the people mm-hmm. that know me, they love me and mm-hmm. they support me. And mm-hmm. that's, I don't, I don't know what the percentage is once you get to adulthood, but it's, it's a good chunk of people. You, you're using different terms in your book, than sort of the main one. So maybe can you yeah. briefly walk us through the, the other three and kind of w- the terms that, that mm-hmm. lock in with each other? Yeah. And, and I, I felt like I was just going in, in the tradition of attachment science by changing the terms <laughs> <laughs> because that's what they, <laughs> that's like, there are so many different terms because yeah. of that. One of the things that I'll mention, the secure, secure attachment, there are two dimensions of attachment. So One is um, how I feel about myself, and the other is how I feel about you. Um, And these are formed in childhood. So it starts with how do I feel about myself and how do I feel about my parent? Mm -hmm. But then that sort of gets generalized to others. And eventually, oftentimes, your your primary romantic relationship. Right, right? exactly. So a lot of therapy Mm -hmm. around attachment styles is about your spouse, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your kind of main partner. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, by the way, uh, we just mentioned the still face experiment. Um, If you look up Love Sense on YouTube, you will see the still face experiment. And then you'll see Sue Johnson, who does couples work uh, with one of her couples. Have you seen that video, Dan? No, no. That's cool. It's amazing. It's uh, they show the, the still face video and then they show a couple in her office and how the two processes parallel each other. Wow. Okay. Josh will track that down and put it in the show notes. Yeah. I was going to say it's definitely worth putting in the show notes because it's really just like brings it alive to see when one of the partners goes still face, like kind of shuts down the other person freaks out and for yeah. good reason. So Wow, um, that's cool. What we have basically in secure attachment is like, I am inherently lovable. I don't have to perform to keep other people around. And also I believe that you are safe and I can trust you. Yeah. So when we look at the insecure attachments, we will be looking at those dimensions. So the first one would be anxious. I call it anxious attachment in my book. It's anxious, ambivalent attachment or preoccupied attachment. And those go with like children or adults. The terms are different. But basically, this is this idea of like what this looks like from the outside is someone who's really clingy. Um, So like, you know, are we okay? Like, I want to make sure we're okay. Like, you didn't text me. I texted you like five minutes ago. Yeah. And where this comes from is like, I trust you. Like, I think that you are good and like, I want to be near you, but I don't believe that I am lovable enough for you to stick around. So I have to take that 
that on myself. I have to say like, all right, I'm responsible for keeping track of like, if something's wrong. And if you're the other person in this relationship with someone who's clingy, you might not be able to see that. You might feel like they're always blaming you. Like you should have done this for me. You're the problem. But really what it is underneath it is like, I don't feel like I'm inherently lovable and so I have to keep track all the time of, are we okay? Yeah. It's all about avoiding abandonment, right? Right. So exactly. I'm going mm-hmm. to take the lead in avoiding abandonment. And then on the other hand, I'm going to interpret things as perhaps leading to abandonment, which will mm-hmm. uh, raise my arousal, my suspicion, my concern. Mm-hmm. And then in that state, I might blame you with my words. But what you're mm-hmm. saying is what really is going on, I, I'm, I'm petrified of being abandoned and mm-hmm. and so I'm doing all this stuff to sort of soothe that anxiety. And that's where understanding what Bowlby taught us that that feeling of disconnection feels like death or like threat of death is so important because what this means is like that when that threat of abandonment comes up, it does tap into your nervous system and yeah. you go into fight or flight survival. Because 200,000 years ago, <laughs> if you are abandoned by your caregiver, you probably do die. I mean, it's exactly. like, and now mm-hmm. today you don't today you you just go, you know, find a quote deviant peer group and get, right. <laughs> get into black metal <laughs> and start smoking cigarettes and drinking and you might screw up your life, but you don't die. Right. Exactly. And, you know, so it, mm-hmm. it's good to kind of keep that evolutionary backdrop in mind to make mm-hmm. sense of, you know, these learned deep, 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 deeply ingrained sort of reactions that we have. Right. Exactly. Okay, what's the next style of insecure? The next style is um, dismissive, avoidant, anxious, avoidant, dismissive, um, and I called it shutdown. And this is a a person that uh, is kind of like I don't I don't like people getting too close to me. I don't like emotions. Like you know, kind of you know, think of like you know, boomer white men um, is like and how they were sort of raised to relate to yeah, their the emotions 50s dad or whatever the, the, the post-war mm-hmm. 50s suburban dad right like right we went we did what we had to do we stuffed that shit down mm-hmm. and uh we love our kids but it's not like a thing that we show a lot right that's exactly. kind of that mm-hmm. yeah that approach yep yeah and i love talking about these folks because they look like they don't need other people they don't have emotions but uh really what it is is they learned early on that if I show emotions, I'm going to drive other people away. So, and this is in part why when I think about boomer gen men, yeah, you know, if you grow up like being a four or five year old and you're crying and then you get shamed for crying. Yeah. Depression era parenting kind of a mm-hmm. thing like, hey, we don't have time for this shit, man. Exactly. Yeah. yeah then then you learn that. Right. Yeah. And you learn like, okay, like I can either belong or I can have my emotions, but I can't have both. Totally. And so then- you actually practice over and over and actually your brain can change so that it doesn't get as much emotional information from your body. Wow. And so you're just like more disconnected from your emotions because that made the most sense. Like if there wasn't someone there that you could go to, to say, Hey, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling scared. And then get a hug. Right. And like, they help you calm down. If you learned like, no, I'm just on my own. It makes a lot of sense to just like suppress those emotions. The other place this comes up is if you had a parent where their emotions scared you. And so that's, I just want to mention that as well. Like they're like, 
if you have, uh, say, a parent who is like, as a child, you're trying to go to them to feel more calm, right? So you're scared and they say, oh, I see you're scared, but let me give you a hug. I'll help you calm down, right? But if you go to a parent that's like, that they're really emotionally volatile, right? Right? Like, hey, you know, like, I'm really, you know, I cheated on my spelling test today and I feel really bad about it. And, you know, a parent might be like, okay, well a healthy parent would say, Oh yeah, I see you feel guilty and upset about this. We, you know, we need to have a conversation about this, but it'll be okay. But if you have a parent that's like, Oh my God, you did what? And they're like upset all weekend. You learn like, all right, I just got to like, I got to take care of myself. Like, you know, I'm going to my parent is not going to make things get calmer. It's going to make things get bigger. So anyway, you learn quickly because this is, yeah, this is two, two years old. This is 18 months. You actually, we learn that quickly that it's better for me to just like stuff my distress down because that's what the people around me need. (laughs) That's what, you know, so they were looking at mothers and infants and they learned like, you know, the mother might say like, oh, I love you. I want to know your emotions. But she would reject the child in this like kind of undercutting way. And the kid learns like, yeah, it's better to like, it's better to just hold my emotions in. So I really like giving that framework because like I do couples therapy and you grow up and then you have a partner that's like, I want to know what you're feeling. But your your attachment system, which is connected to your nervous system, says no, you don't like, right. I've learned this lesson before. Like right. I have shared my emotions before, but now it's 40 years later and I don't even know how to do it now. And when I do it, it's really clumsy because I'm out of practice. And then you get mad at me because it seems like I'm doing it wrong. Like I'm only telling you half of it and it's because yeah. I only know half of it, but you feel like I'm holding it back from, I mean, you know, you can imagine the conflicts that happen. <laughs> I just brief note for those who are familiar with this stuff as well. It connects in my mind to the ongoing and kind of newer research on intergenerational trauma, Mm -hmm. where like one generation of the family experiences a trauma, like often refugees or a war or, you know, a, a catastrophic death in the family, something that really reorganizes their life. And then they learn a way to live given that change. But then they turn that into axioms. They turn that into rules for how everybody ought to live. And the thing that served them during or after their traumatic experience then gets learned by the children or the grandchildren. And and they are still actually suffering effects because those rules don't work anymore. We don't we don't need that grandma. We don't need that dad. Okay, we have one more style, though. Yeah, I call it shame-filled. In children, it's called disorganized. And in adulthood, it's called fearful. Um, Okay. It tends to be a really small portion of the population. This is the smallest group, yeah. This comes from emotional abuse or other types of abuse or neglect, typically. And it is this message of, like, there's, there's something about you that is not worth loving that like you do not deserve care. You do not deserve love. You do not deserve belonging. And so this will be someone that is both feels internally, like there's something really wrong with me that I don't deserve love, but also like other people in my life also are not, are not trustworthy. And for children that grow up in an abusive environment, basically it really screws up your attachment system 
because we just talked about two different ways of getting attachment where it's like, I need to be really clingy, but I can get attachment or I can shut down my emotions, but I can get close to you. I can still get it. Yeah. Right. I can still get it. This is like when I'm afraid, I go to my caretaker because that's how I calm my nervous system down. But if my caretaker is the source of the fear because they are for being violent towards me, yeah. then my attachment system does not know what to do. And I just get stuck. And like this can look like shutting down, dissociation. Um, it can also look like people that have like a variety of like different behaviors of basically just like how do you cope with the person that is supposed to help me calm down and be my protection is actually a source of danger. And I have to live in this state all the time. It's very, very sad. And I will say that there is a way of experiencing the faith tradition that I grew up with that feels like this, that feels like the source of comfort is also the source of danger. And my attachment system does not know what to do with that. Okay. Before we get into that, which is where we're going now, I just want to say like from a explaining science and how confident are we in the research perspective what we've mm-hmm. set up till now is pretty settled science like mm-hmm. lots of evidence over multiple cultures five six decades of mm-hmm. data the attachment stuff is is you know as far as psychologists are concerned pretty rock solid Right. Yeah. People are like, oh, I didn't know it was called attachment science. I always call it attachment theory. And that's because in the field, we've been like people like Sue Johnson have been saying, like, we need to stop calling it a theory. Yeah. Like the evidence is there. Look, I know I do this every week. I tell you about the Patreon campaign and why it might be a good idea to join it for $5 a month. The number one reason that people tell me that they join it is to support the work that I'm doing on this show financially. We do have some costs. Editor Josh, producer Josh costs some money, um, but it's also, you know, something I put a lot of time and effort into um, and a lot of myself into is probably the way to say it. And I really appreciate it when people value that uh, and think it's worth, you know, spending a little bit of money, five bucks a month. And what I try and do is give some real value back for that. So there are two exclusive episodes each month that come to patrons, as well as ad-free and uncut versions of these main feed episodes. So you get a little bit more context with the client and you don't have to listen to any ads. And... I feel like that's a pretty good situation. I think it's a good value add. And I'm also super grateful to the people who have turned this into a part-time job for me. Uh, And I'd love to be able to spend even more time on it as we go forward. So uh, the most recent patron exclusive episode is another Generation Gap Culture Hour with Josh and Tony Jones. We talk about codependency, which is now normally called enmeshment, a question that Josh brought in. And then we talk about this Caitlin Beatty article about luxury Christians and money. And we get fairly candid uh, about money and, you know, uh, owning homes, having luxury items, having, um, you know, the, the sort of meaning for us personally behind those items. What are we trying to 
you know, to get to sort of the, the heart issue of it, what are we hoping that our houses or our watches or our cars or our clothing or whatever, what are we hoping that it, it signifies to other people? Are we trying to show the world that we've made it? Is it a status thing? And how can a Christian do that? How should we think about that stuff? Uh, it's, a, I think, a fascinating question. And I get pretty vulnerable on this episode talking about it. So if you're interested in vulnerability from me, that's fine if you're not. But if you are, I would I would give that one a listen. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. The link's in the show notes. And okay, let's get back to the episode. Now we're going to start applying this to theology, to lived Christian experience. And there is some empirical research on this. We're going to be talking about some of it and a couple people who've done work. You've got experience with a number of clients. We, you know, we can call that anecdotal, but it's more than just anecdotal, but it's all that is to say, we're getting into newer territory here. We Uh are, this is more experimental and it's fascinating. That's kind of what makes it fascinating, Mm -hmm. but just, just so people can kind of go, okay, that stuff was like, that's really solid stuff. And now we're playing in the sandbox a bit more which is which is why it's right. fun. Yeah. Um, but I, I just like to be clear about that. Right. And I think as we pivot, it is helpful to say that it is become clear to researchers that the majority of monotheists, our attachment systems do relate to God in the way that we relate to other people. Now, there are many, 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 many questions about how and why, because yeah. up until this point, Attachment research has mostly been based in going into a lab and watching a child and a mother or watching couples, right? Like Two people, right. Exactly. And so then you get into this area where it's like, well, we can't observe God. So um, it gets a little murkier. Yeah, it's a little bit harder. But, you know, I I talked about Lisa Miller and, and her work showing that we really do have an innate capacity to sort of treat God relationally. And for me, it was so helpful to look at this framework of attachment. And it was so, it was so validating for me. So like what I found was just reading just the basics of like, if you grew up in a home where it feels like it is on your shoulders to keep the connection with your parent you are going to feel anxious and resentful. And I was like, oh, yeah. So it makes sense because I was told my whole life, it's up to you to keep your faith. It's up to you to keep your connection with God, right? Et cetera. And I felt anxious and resentful as a, you know, 34-year-old as I was like writing the book. And I'm like, okay, this like gives me some like framework to put into like why I feel the way I feel. Yeah. But it does fit because it's like, yeah, this is how our attachment systems respond to these terms of a relationship. That's clear. It'd probably be helpful to give like a summary of where we've gone so far in the field. And so basically they notice with some folks like, hey, unsurprisingly, you relate to God the same way that you relate to your parents. So if you feel secure with your parents, you feel secure with God. If you feel anxious with your parents, you feel anxious with God, you know, 
But then there are these people that had really dysfunctional families and they feel really secure with God. And that's that person that like gets up on a Sunday and is like, I went through all sorts of trauma my whole childhood. Mm -hmm. And then I stumbled into these church doors on at my rock bottom and I experienced a love I'd never experienced before. So they actually have terms for these. One is the correspondence view or hypothesis. And the other, which is like your attachment relationship corresponds with your parents. And at a population level, that seems to be like, just for a statistically average person, that Mm -hmm. seems to be the strongest finding is that, you know, if you're parenting, for instance, and what you want is for your child to be securely attached to God, statistically, Mm -hmm. the way you want to get there is for them to be securely attached to you. And then you tell them about God. Right. Mm -hmm. But then there's this other thing. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is like people that did not have security and then they find security with God. Yeah. Um, And so they're trying to figure out like graph, because what we also know is like, there's this element of like, if you have security with God, you're more likely to have a secure relationship with God. But if you have like an insecure relationship with your parents, you're less likely to stay within your faith tradition. One of the guys that I found and was texting with you about the summer when I was kind of working on this project is this guy, Per Gronkvist, a Scandinavian fellow. And one of the things that he found that I thought was really interesting, you know, you talked about the disorganized attachment, also known as, uh, you know, shame filled in your book. And what he said is that according to the research, those with a disorganized attachment are more inclined to like altered states of consciousness bordering on disassociation. But -hmm. these can also be labeled mystical spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. However, they're not always experienced as joyful. They are sometimes experienced as frightening, but within a religious tradition, they could be kind of vaulted up as paragon, like Mm -hmm. perfect examples of someone who's totally on fire for God. But in the long term, the people with any kind of insecure attachment, they're actually likely to, to continue to experience trouble. Like these big mountaintop experiences are maybe more likely to be experienced by people with insecure attachment and they might be more powerful and that might lead them to more often give their testimony, but it is not a silver bullet for the rest mm-hmm. of their life is, is probably one way of kind of summarizing those findings together. Does that sound right to you? Oh yeah, totally. And like in my book, I went through and looked at the biographies and which I should give a nod to Doug Frank, um, who wrote gentler God and did it first. Um, <laughs> looked at biographies of theologians um, from the 20th century and how their personal experiences shaped their theology, which then shaped American evangelicalism. If you look at like Spurgeon, for example, I mean, he would talk about things like I'm just the worst person in the world. Yeah. And like that tracks with that person with disorganized attachment, um, with trauma. We don't know a lot about his childhood, but that he was separated from the rest of his, he had like nine siblings. Yeah. And so even as he's, he's interpreting it in the spiritual way of like, oh, I see the, I mean, he says things like, oh, if I could basically, uh, 
suicide trigger warning, he basically says, like, when I think about the sins I've committed, if I could, like, go back and have never lived, I would choose that, right? Like, that is, like, some suicidal ideation stuff. That is, that is really strong language, especially for someone who has supposedly found peace and love through God and right. is spreading. Right. Like, that's, that is not the kind of thing you'd expect someone who's found their spiritual answers to say about their own life. I do. It, it does suggest something deeper in his, you know, in his past and pathology. Yeah. Like here's this record of this guy that was a preacher and like, let's try to understand his story, but like Spurgeon, you know, and others get put on these like pedestals, like A.W. Tozer, you know, I mentioned in the book, you know, I kind of put him in the anxious attachment category with God as an example, but really like looking at his life, he avoided people. He just continually sought these mystical experiences of being alone. Hmm. If you read his bi- biography, which I did, his kids and wife were like, he did not care about us. Like we did hmm. not feel love from him. Ba- I mean, I'm paraphrasing. And yet, like, he wrote this book about, like, how to be close to God and how to have, you know, this mystical, spiritual wow. experience. Yeah. Okay, so this brings me to, like, a big question I have. And I I want to just say that I'm playing around with this idea, so don't take it too seriously. I texted this to you back in July, Crispin, but is radical conversion God's backup plan for people? Uh-huh. Like, the my question is, like... <laughs> Of course, I'm not asking you to speak for God, nor am I speaking for God. But I like this idea of a backup plan insofar as it's like, look, I'd prefer that y'all just feel secure. You know, uh-huh. like I, I care for the sparrow. I care for you. I care for the lilies of the field. I care for you. If you really get f-ed up so much in your life by other people, I've got this other method, but it's mm-hmm. not plan A. It's plan mm-hmm. D and it is radical conversion. Uh-huh. And, and and to give people like for once that experience of love and acceptance and and something that floods their system with some sort of positivity that they then a- associate with God. So mm-hmm. that's my pitch. What do you think <laughs> about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that like gets into a huge theological questions. Mm-hmm. My best take on like my theology is basically like God wants our well-being. That's the whole goal of the Hebrew law was God saying like, hey, this isn't about like keeping me happy. This Mm. is because I care about you and this is going to be the best way to do it. And like, I mean, and there's so much like within that um, understanding of law and how Israel understood law. And then Jesus comes and I think does something similar where Jesus is like, here is how we create a healthy, flourishing society. And so that's generally my take, which then asks the question, like, what does Jesus' death on the cross mean? And I don't know. Um, So (laughs) you can't answer that one for us, huh, Crispin? Okay. Oh my gosh. But as a therapist, I'm not a Christian counselor. Like I'm, I'm a therapist, right? Yeah. And I, I think about like what is healthy or healing or helpful for people. And like a big part of me is like has so much religious trauma and has seen so much religious trauma in the church. I'm like, don't go there. 
also, <laughs> I recognize that like there are so few places in our society where you can show up and be like, I'm really struggling in my oh, life right now. 100%. Right? Like, I need someone to, to like, take me out to lunch this week. I need, yeah. like, a mentor. I need someone to call. And, like, I need someone that I can call when I don't want to drink. Like, I know AA. Yeah, 12 like, Steps, Celebrate Recovery. I mean, I think mm-hmm. Celebrate Recovery, because of the explicit Christian angle, is probably the best example of what right. you're kind of gesturing toward. Yeah, right. I think the things that are really healing about AA, which I have mixed feelings on it, but in that element of, like, can I mean, here we go back to attachment, having that human connection being such a grounding healing thing and knowing yeah. you are accepted, but thinking about like how powerful that experience is of like, you are seen, you are loved, your life does matter to someone. Like those are some of the keys to like mental health when it comes to the relationships that we need. So people who have insecure attachment, when they become religious they get like a a reprieve from that pain to some degree. Most of them do not. It's not a silver bullet like we were saying earlier. They don't sort of all of a sudden have healthy attachment and stay that way forever. Like the to which I just think, yeah, the, the wounds of insecure attachment as a child run very deep and mm-hmm. simply joining a church is not going to solve that by itself. He says, though, there are fairly rare. There are people who truly remain steady and and continue to have secure attachment for the rest of their lives who did not have it before. But he says their communities look like they play a big role. So that is what's interesting. Like there's a really theologically and psychologically powerful point in there. I think you can say that it is through other people that we most often experience God. And I would throw giving your kid healthy attachment Mm -hmm. and maybe introduce whether or not you introduce them to God in that context is them experiencing God's love through you because it's like the best thing you can do for a person Mm -hmm. is give them healthy attachment when they're little. And so that's interesting. The the ones that do kind of really turn it around, it looks like from the research, there's a community angle there back Mm -hmm. to 12 steps, back to celebrate recovery, that acceptance, some sort of unconditional acceptance, same thing we do in therapy with clients. It's like trying to give them an experience of the opposite of what they had growing up, essentially. That's what what restores. Yeah, what you're talking about is earned secure attachment, hmm. which is another category. It's secure attachment, but it's what they call secure attachment when the events in your life would indicate otherwise or when you're coming from an insecure attachment. By the way, there's research that shows they were looking specifically at women that had a preoccupied, anxious attachment style were much more likely to have like a precipitous like conversion experience. So that's kind of interesting, like, whereas like people that weren't in that category were more likely to like over the course of months or something like that. But those were people that like went to like the college church camp and were like, yep, I'm giving my life to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because they just to, to connect that back and remind people, those are the ones for whom they think, well, I need to be checking in. I need to be doing things Mm -hmm. right. That's what you call the anxious, right. Uh Or clingy. Uh And they are the most likely to approach Jesus that way, Uh essentially. And you know, that can sound like we're kind of making fun of them, but I just think it makes sense. Like Uh I don't, I don't think it's immoral or Mm. any sort of weakness of character. It's like, yeah, 
you're going to relate like that's sort of the whole point here is to some degree. And it's interesting to, to figure out how it's slightly different. You are going to relate to God the way you relate to your caregiver. Mm-hmm. If you are in a society that assumes God exists and all that stuff. Some of the researchers have speculated about this. Todd Hall talks about this. You might start out in more of what looks like a secure place, and then you move into your old ways of functioning. I mean, just think about a relationship, right? Where you're like, right. you haven't maybe done your work to deal with family of origin stuff. So then you get to a new relationship and you're like, yeah, this person loves me unconditionally. This is the best relationship ever. And then a year later, right. it's like, hey, like the same insecurities are coming up. That being said, and to your point about people that do stay steady, there are there's also like it's actually very possible. I'm an ex, an example of this where my partner, uh, we've been married for 15 years. Like I came from a really insecure place, uh, like emotional abuse in my family, and because of who they are, um, who my partner, because of who she is and the way she responded to me and a variety of things. Like I learned, like I remember we were in couples therapy at one point and I was like, yeah, I, in my mind, like subconsciously, like I get up and make coffee for you every morning. So you won't leave me. And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'm like, I know, like, I know that's not the truth of it, but that's how it feels. It feels like I'm earning my spot. Right. Yeah. And like what I've learned from her through our experiences together is like, oh, actually you do love me and you're here for me. And like, I don't have to perform to keep you around. And so then that has translated into like healing my own attachment where I have the secure attachment and that happens. And like, there are other people in my life as well. Like my friend, Mark, who I met through church, someone my dad's age who like, I remember this one time we were meeting for coffee And I'm coming from this really dysfunctional family. And he says, you know, I love every moment I get to spend with you. But whenever you need to take off, it's fine. Like, he's like, I know I'm retired. I got time. But like, you have kids. Like, it was just this perfect, like, I love you so much. And like, there's no strings attached. Like, you don't have to like, you don't have to stick around and make me. He's like, you know, just do what's best for you. And it's stuff like that, that it's like, I, I, I even wrote in my book, like, sometimes I think like, I think of Mark and I'm like, if I can believe that God loves me like a 10th as much as Mark does, yeah. like that helps, you know? And so there, all that to say, like, you know, there's research that shows that over the course of a four year period, 25% of people in this group, they looked at changed their attachment style. Yeah. So there are all these factors that can help us heal so it makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, what we would expect to see is someone join a church and because of factors that are too complex to get into here, they end up r- unfortunately just like replaying the same thing, which isn't their fault. It just like, yeah, if you're that clingy person, then you end up being really clingy, which then drives other people away. Yeah. And then it like reinforces like, yep, there you go. See, like I'm too much for people. Which would probably Um, happen in a church or a non-church setting, right? mm -hmm. Just because now you're dealing with a bunch of people relating to each other. So one of the things that comes up, like I think about um, Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Mr. Rogers at the end of his life, right? Super sweet guy, ordained in ministry, like so loving. Yeah. 
And at the end of his life was like, asked his wife, do you think I'm a sheep or a goat? Right. And like, do you think I'm that, in with God? Right. Exactly. And I, I think that there's like, I mean, I'll speculate. Like, I think there's some neurodivergence there. Like, I think mm. there, you know, a variety of things just that, you know, is, I think his brain tended the beautiful things about his brain that we see yeah. also tended to like sort things into categories that like made existential questions hard. Hmm. All that to say, I think like if we know that there are people like Mr. Rogers sitting in our pews, pastors should be aware of that. And they shouldn't say things like, like, you know, I mentioned various people in my book. Like I think about Francis Chan saying like your worry and stress like reeks of arrogance to God. Like, okay, maybe that's, you know, maybe there's someone that that's helpful to say to, I don't know, but like. I think we need to give preference to that person that is like, I want to know that God is close to me, even if I'm worried and stressed. Like I've, I've just taken notes over the years about like the things that I've heard in churches. Like I, at one, one time I heard a pastor say like, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Like Jesus didn't die for you individually. Like that's an individualistic thing. Like Jesus died for his church. If you're part of the church, then, then Jesus died for you. And I'm like, Okay, that's a big theological question, but for that person that like barely made it there this morning that yeah. hates themselves and think God hates them, like yeah. why did you feel like you needed to make this special caveat to be like, "Hey, if you think that God like individualistically sacrificed himself for you, he did not." Yeah, that that pastor said that because they thought they needed to hear it. They're working out their own shit. That's the answer. I mean, I mean that, like, I, I, I think <laughs> I heard this from a pastor. A pastor said to me once, he was like, yeah, like a lot of pastors like you've identified yourself. Like they maybe need to get taken down a couple of notches. Yeah. <laughs> like, and yeah. so they're preaching a sermon to themselves. Right. But like, you know, I think about like the years that I sat in church, like being told, like, you know, I need to tell you, you think you're good, but you're so much worse than you think you are. But if yeah. you're someone that has experienced significant trauma and you already feel like you are the worst thing on the earth, and then you come into church and you're being told that, like, that's not good news. I do want to talk about solutions here. You talk in the book about the type of experience that a securely attached infant toddler has and, and that it's called the yield state. Tell us about the yield state in, in regular. So we're back to regular attachment uh-huh. science and then we're going to apply it. Yeah. So basically that's just this idea of just being present with. So this is like a mom holding a baby. They're not doing anything. And this stood out to me because my experience of like having spiritual time with God, my quiet time, my devotions was always like, you have to learn something. You have to be convicted of something. Yeah. Like, or you have to be um, talking about like, what are you supposed to do this week? Right. So it's always this like, Action oriented thing. Underlining and highlighting the shit out of your teen study Bible. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. But that's not what I do with my son all the time. Like there are times where I'm like, hey, let's like do, let's talk about the week. Or or we even have to talk about like, hey, this thing you did, like, let's talk about how to do it better next time. But we also like play Uno at the kitchen table or we just like snuggle together while watching TV or like whatever it is. And we, we need that. Um, and that for me was like recognized, like I did not have that experience 
And that yield state of just being in the present moment with someone really parallels what we know about mindfulness, right? Because mindfulness is the same idea of like getting away from like, what do I need to do next? What do I need to be working on? What do I need to strategize? Yeah, right? non-judgmental being... attitude towards your thoughts and feelings and yep. bodily sensations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned Sabbath in the book as a way to sort of apply this to a Christian life, you know, resting for the day or part of the day or for a period of time, you know, just sort of delighting in right. things. Well, yeah. And I think like when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about like, not the way that we've necessarily thought of Sabbath. You better stop doing stuff. It's Sunday. Right. Now, now yeah. it's anxious again, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. As a therapist, like I will have choices during the day, like this 20 minutes. Do I sit outside and like take a deep breath and be present with the moment? And like I have an option of like inviting God into that space or not. Or do I like try to get my notes done? Right. And like when we think about the Sabbath idea of like in Egypt and like more and more and more versus like God saying, like, I'm instituting a new nation where we take time to rest. And it's worth mentioning that that rest piece actually is what leads to the secure attachment. It's a product of secure attachment, but it's also the path to it. Yeah. It made me think of contemplative practice. And exactly. Probably I thought of that because that has been so powerful for me, but I want it, it's kind of giving me new language for maybe why that's been powerful. And and what's really interesting to me about this is that what I thought was powerful about my contemplative practice was that I had sort of not quite mountaintop spiritual experiences, not like the most overwhelmingly joyful experiences of my life, although sometimes, but mm-hmm. I, I would get, and I do sometimes get kind of flooded with joy in contemplation, but also just the, the sort of lower level, like, Oh, I I'm just sort of practicing being here with God being mm-hmm. okay. I'm it's not activity based. I mean, I might be repeating like a simple mantra, but I'm repeating it to clear my mind, not to focus my mind on more concepts. I think that there's this element that is missing from my tradition of evangelicalism, which is like, God is there for you. And I don't mean that in like in, 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 I don't mean that in an individualistic way, but like a, like God really cares about humanity and that includes you. Which is like how healthy parenting works, right? Like it doesn't mean that I like do everything for my kids or let them like run the house, but like their well-being is like forefront on my mind. But what has happened in the tradition I grew up in is it's almost this like flip of roles of like, it's my job to keep God happy. God's really upset if I sin. God needs me to tell him how amazing he is. Like, you know, those sorts of things. And so, and even thinking about devotions time, right? Like this is a time for God to tell me the things I'm not doing well enough or the things I need to be doing. And that's a really big shift from God being like, I want you to rest and I want to be here with you as you have this experience of resting. Crispin, I mean, anything else that you want to make sure we touch on here? I mean, I feel like we, this has been an incredible <laughs> whirlwind tour. 
Yeah. Something that's been really impactful for me theologically, but also with this attachment framework is a book called Atonement and the New Perspective by Stephen Bernhope. Um, so he's looking at the, you know, the recent scholarship on Paul and how do we understand what Jesus' death on the cross meant, but it being a signifier of God saying like, hey, this is in remembrance of the new covenant that I'm going to always love you. And I'm putting a stamp on it with this sacrifice and the sacrifice is me. So I found that to be really mm-hmm. helpful. I still don't know exactly what the cross means, but yeah. Uh, but I think that uh, breeds a lot more security with God versus like, I was going to punch you in the face forever, but instead I did something else. Punched myself in the face instead of you, yes. right? Yeah. I mean, oh, there's so much more. I mean, that that's such a rich landscape, you know, to to take this. And we didn't really dive into the theology very much. And, and maybe we can do that in another episode. I, I know that in some sense, you know, you and I think of toxic theology, whatever we want to, we, I'm sure we mostly agree on what counts as toxic as, you know, I think you think it's more powerful than I do. Um, <laughs> and I, well, okay, we'll just, we can't go there. All right. Uh, <laughs> yes, just, because yeah. well, let me throw my pitch out yeah, there throw a pitch, yeah. to people that are interested in this. Most of the research asks, how did your parent, your relationship with your parent impact your relationship with God? And I, despite the research, <laughs> have an inkling that says like being told things like, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, God's going to send you to hell forever. Right. Like, and wants to throw you away has an impact on your attachment to God, regardless of your parenting or like your parental experience. But also there's correlations between our view of God and how we parent uh, there's research mm-hmm. that shows that those parallel each other. So it it's kind of like a, how could you ever tell? We so. might not really disagree because my pitch w- is basically just like, okay, but if most kids have good attachment and they go to a church that has these big, scary theological claims, but most people don't really live as if those claims are true. Like nobody is quitting their job to go preach the gospel to save people from hell or very few people are. Maybe the pastor did maybe a couple missionaries have done it, then, then everybody gets the implicit sense like, okay, we believe that, but like, it doesn't, we don't have to Uh do much about it. And then it's only the insecure people and, or the people like myself who are just really dialed into it Mm -hmm. sort of personality wise that then it becomes toxic for. And, And for me, that's the spiritual abuse around end times expectations and all that shit. So maybe that's not such a big disagreement because if most people are securely attached then they get to kind of filter that stuff out through mm-hmm. that secure attachment. And when the toxic theology becomes truly toxic is the people for whom either they're really interested in it or they have insecure attachment. And so therefore the stakes are higher sort of a person to person sort of MIOK human level, right. not just mm-hmm. a quote unquote spiritual eternal destination. Yeah. Or like level. it reinforces the messages they've gotten. Right. right. So like, I already feel like I am totally unworthy of love. Right. And then you go into a church that tells you just that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Well, maybe we don't. Right, great. <laughs> we came, we came together. Uh, Crispin Mayfield. Thank you so much. I, the book will be in the show notes. Also, you've, you've been on before about maybe a year ago with Matt Carter and we talked about heavy music and some theology and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this thing that we just talked about with shame 
I talk about with As Cities Burn, their album where he talks about like all I am is a monster and like I'm so sinful and I'm so horrible. And then like the next song is like about how his dad left when he was really young. I'm not going to (laughs) like speculate too much, but like. All right, Cody, if you want to come on and set the record straight, you know, (laughs) uh, you can get my number from Aaron. Um, But that actually there is kind of a lot of overlap between these two episodes. So people who haven't heard that one, they might really enjoy listening to it. And that'll be in the, the show notes as well. Thank you, producer Josh. Crispin, thanks for being here, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. 